everybody. How we doing? Good, good, to, good to see you this morning. Happy New Year. Um, we are in the season, the church calendar season of Christmas now. Christmas isn't just a day. It's actually a season that lasts 12 days long, right? The 12 days of Christmas. That's where that comes from. And while Advent is like a season of waiting and anticipation, you know, and preparation, Christmas is just a season of celebration. You just let it all hang out this time of year. So it's like, you know, binge eating, fine, totally works with Christmas season. And we're supposed to try to keep our celebration going for 12 full days, so all the way up to January 6th. And then we'll kind of switch over into a new mode, which is the um, season of Epiphany. But today, our text comes from Matthew chapter 2. We're going to kind of take the long way around and come back to our text and hopefully be able to read it with sort of new eyes toward the end. We have to do this because, you know, we know Luke chapter 2 really well, like the Christmas story from, from Luke. Matthew, not so much. Like Matthew's take on the situation, we almost forget about it. Um, And Matthew and Luke agree that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth, but they disagree on just how that happened. Um, In Luke, Mary and Joseph were from the area up around Nazareth and then came down to Bethlehem for the census. In Matthew, the family already lived down in, in Bethlehem and didn't move to Nazareth until after the flight to Egypt. And historically, we really don't know what the real story was and how that worked. Uh, Another big difference between Luke and Matthew is that for Matthew, Joseph is the real star. Mary kind of takes a little bit of a secondary. She's kind of along for the ride. Joseph takes center stage. And his story really is quite remarkable. Um, And so we're going to dig into that a little bit today. One of my favorite bits of research from the past 10 years, I know I've shared it in so many different kind of ways, but it comes from this Israeli man named Dan Ariely from Duke, who did this massive study on college campuses where he would go and offer students 10 bucks if they would come take part in this study. It just took like 15 minutes. And he would give them a, a worksheet with like 20 simple math puzzles, like anybody could do them, but it sort of took some time. And said, solve as many as you can. However many you get right, I'll give you an extra dollar on top of the 20 bucks. And so they would, they would do their deal. They would um, gave them, I think, like five minutes. And then they would grade their own paper, take it to a shredder in the back of the room, feed it through and shred the paper, and then come forward, tell the proctor how many they had solved, and get paid their money and leave. It was all done sort of on their honor. But what they didn't know is that the shredder was rigged so that they could, the researchers could, it felt like it was shredding, but it wasn't. The researchers could check their answers to see if they were lying. And what they found is, on average, people usually, just on average, solved about four problems. But they reported to having solved about six problems. So they lied, but just a little bit. They actually stole money, but just a little bit. And they did this all over in like the U.S. and all over Europe, in Turkey, Israel, Eastern Europe. And the results were always the same. They tested 30,000 people that took part in this study. And there were only 12 big cheaters, people who just lied and took an extra 20 bucks. They, they took about a total of $150 from them. But they also found that about 18,000 people were what you would call small cheaters. They, they stole just one or two, three bucks at a time, stole $36,000 from the experimenters. I mean, the obvious question to me is always, if you're going to lie, 
Why not just lie, go big, right? Like get the 20, extra $20, take 40 bucks home. And Ariely says, this is what he's studying. The answer is that all humans want to be able to do two things at the same time. First, they want, we want to think of ourselves as basically honest people. And we want to have the benefits of cheating every now and then. That's what we want. All people want. Does that, does that ring true with you? This totally nails me. Like, this is absolutely me, every board game I ever played. And, and the, the way that Ariely says, the way that we do this is we rationalize our behavior. If people will only cheat like this um, to the extent that they can sort of rationalize it and still think of themselves as basically good, good people. And this ability to rationalize is like an evil superpower. I mean, if you think of any comic book villain, at the root of their backstory, at the root of their character, is some rationalization for why they're doing what they're, they're doing. And we won't do things we can't rationalize and, and still feel like a good person. For instance, if you put a dollar bill and a can of soda in a fridge, like in a college dorm room fridge, which one do you think will disappear first, the can of soda or the dollar bill? They actually, they actually tried this at MIT. They loaded every fridge they could find on campus with a dollar bill and a can of soda. And what they found is almost every can of soda disappeared. Nobody took the dollar bills. Nobody. Because taking a dollar, taking cash, feels like stealing. But a can of soda, it's just like preemptive hospitality. Like they, <laughs> they would have they would have let you have this, right? You can rationalize stealing a can of soda, but not cash. It feels too much. It's difficult to rationalize. And Ariely um, says these mundane rationalizations, they just have a massive impact on the world and on us. Because nobody loses their integrity in one transaction. They barter it away in thousands of tiny trades. Just one rationalization at a time. Hemingway is one of my favorite writers. In his book, A Movable Feast, he talks about this friend who went broke, and he asked him, how did you go broke? And the friend's answer, he's probably drunk at the time, because they were always drunk. Hemingway, his friends were always drunk. But he said, his friend said, well, gradually at first, and then kind of suddenly, which is a great answer. <laughs> and this is it. This is how we lose our way in life. Gradually at first, and then kind of suddenly we realize our integrity is gone, right? But, but we can't rationalize everything. So for instance, Ariely in their study, they would go around and ask wait staff at um, restaurants the best way to dine and dash in the restaurant. And they all knew good ways to, to get away with it. But they also said nobody ever tries it because that's kind of, that behavior is difficult to rationalize. But when they asked them about, this was a few years back, so they asked them about illegally downloaded music and movies, they all had these files on their computers because that behavior is easy to rationalize. In fact, there's this one student who just went off. He's like, I don't even think it's wrong because record labels are evil and I wasn't going to buy the music anyway so it doesn't hurt the band. And all bands really want is for people to listen to their music, for their music to So I'm actually helping the band. Like the time he's done rationalizing, he's not stealing music. He's fighting for freedom, right? And down with corporations. But you would never say like restaurants are evil and a chef just wants his food to be eaten, and, and I wasn't going to go to that place anyway, so what harm is it if I dine and dash? That, that behavior is more difficult to rationalize. And so there's this little dance we all play. 
of how much can we rationalize and still feel like a basically good person. And in the story of Christmas, Joseph, in particular, had a ton of opportunities to just rationalize his way out of participation in God's plan. But God had asked Joseph specifically to protect Mary and Jesus. And it turns out God chose a remarkable young man for this task. And likely he was quite young. Sometimes Joseph gets played as an older man, but um, he, you know, he would have been considered a man at age 13. He would then go to work, start to establish himself, to prepare for a wife. Most men um, married around age 18, 19, 20. Most women married around 14, 15. And so Mary and Joseph were likely very young and engaged while living apart, preparing to establish their household. And Matthew begins his gospel with one of those really long genealogy passages that's it's like the passage you skip whenever you read the bible if you run into this you just like and you go to the end of it um but it's matthew chapter 1 1 an account of the genealogy of jesus the messiah the son of david the son of abraham abraham was the father of isaac and isaac the father of jacob and jacob the father of judah and his brothers and judah the father of perez and on and on it goes i won't read the whole big long thing for you then clear down 15 verses later eleazar the father of methon methon the father of jacob jacob the father of joseph the husband of mary of whom jesus was born who is called messiah did you catch the weirdness at the end it should say joseph the father of jesus but it doesn't it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary. Feeling a tiny bit emasculated for Joseph at this point, right? Jacob is the father of Joseph, but Joseph isn't the father of anyone. He's the husband of Mary. Matthew often places all this importance on names. Later on, the angel will call Joseph a son of David, which is kind of not a, a typical point to make, except that Jewish prophecy held that the Messiah had to come from the house of David. Remember, we talked a few weeks back about the shoot that will come from the stump of Jesse's house. That's the story he's tapping into here. If Jesus is going to be the Jewish Messiah, he has to come from the house of David. The problem is, Mary's not from that house. But Joseph was. But he's not married yet. He's betrothed. He's engaged to Mary. Mary shows up pregnant. And we're told Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly, it says. He's going to divorce her. And suddenly the whole plan is in jeopardy. If Jesus is to be Messiah, he has to come from the house and lineage of David. So he's got to get his name into that list of names somehow. It's not going to happen through Mary. She isn't part of that family. And Joseph, I mean, you put yourself in his shoes, the, his fiancée turns up pregnant, and which seems more likely? She's pregnant by the Spirit of God with the future king of the world, or Mary's been fooling around, right? And, of course, this is what Joseph thought. And it says he's doing things quietly because he's a righteous man. So to be called a righteous man for an observant Jew is not a small thing. It's hard to be righteous under the law. And it's not just like keeping a bunch of rules. It was this entire approach to life that sort of revealed 
what you really loved, what you really cared about, if you meant to honor God. And, it, and this approach was, was meant to make a person more fully human all the time, as human was intended to be, and, and then to foment shalom, peace, um, and extend that to the rest of the world. There's a ton of work to be righteous. I mean, it just meant everything you do all throughout your daily lives, your habits and rhythms and patterns would, would take a particular shape. And we sometimes forget as Christians because we're kind of free from the burden of the law. They didn't keep the law out of obligation. They kept it out of love for God and the Jewish people. And this is how they showed their love. And so the fact that Joseph was a, a righteous man, that it says that, just means that day in, day out, he cultivated these habits and rhythms and practices that nurtured a deep love for God and for other people, especially God's people. He wanted it. Like, if he was righteous, he chased it. It mattered to him. It shaped the way he saw the world and his place in that world. And here, in particular, it shaped the way he saw marriage. Marriage was sacred to his people. And Joseph thinks Mary has disrespected that. And it matters to him that his life through his marriage would model fidelity to his community. So he doesn't plan to divorce her because he's like, um, mean or has been insulted or shamed by her, he plans to divorce her because he's righteous. And because he's righteous, he's trying to do it quietly to get her in the least amount of trouble possible. And he falls asleep and an angel appears saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Again, there's that emphasis on names. Again, like, it's not like I have a couple ideas for names. I mean, the, it, it wasn't about which name to choose. In Hebrew culture, to name a child was to claim the child as your own. They, the angel says, name him Jesus or Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. And so there's kind of a double significance here that, one, it confirms Mary's story. God has chosen this child to redeem Israel, but also Jesus is being asked, in being asked to name the child, he's being, um, Joseph is asked to claim Jesus as his own son by giving him a name. So he figures out Mary's story is real, and he has this huge part to play in it. But suddenly Joseph has this rationalization problem. And we cannot imagine the, the inner turmoil he went, he went through. I mean, just the, the pressure he would have experienced. Like everything that Joseph knew about life and relationships, about um, fidelity and sex and what it meant to be a righteous man, it, everything told him he had to divorce Mary. That was the right thing, the righteous thing to do. And so this dream throws him into turmoil. Tons of room to rationalize it away. And it was also kind of normal um, among some Jewish people of the day um, to think, you know, people put too much stock in dreams. And so he had an easy way to rationalize away the dream. Others took dreams quite seriously. In fact, sometimes as a way of asking for guidance, Hebrew men would go sleep at the temple until they had a dream that they felt helped them help guide them. It was called incubating a dream. If anybody wants to do that, I have a key to the church. You can do it anytime in here. It'll be fine. Um, 
But Joseph's not doing that. He's not looking for a dream here. The dream came out of nowhere. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to just kind of rationalize it away. But we're told when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son and he named him Jesus. So he doesn't divorce her. He does exactly as the angel instructed. And it always, this, this story always makes me think of, I associate it with the time the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. Do you remember that? With a question about divorce. And they're like, is it okay to get divorced? And Jesus is like, well, not the way you guys do it. Like, you guys get divorced because you don't know how to love. You have hard hearts. I always wonder if his answer, when he gave that answer, if he was thinking about Joseph, the guy who helped raise him, and that, that tender heart Joseph had. Joseph, who could have exposed Mary to shame, but after the angel spoke to him in a dream, he protected her and the child. And the whole gospel story turns on Joseph's choice in that moment. And from that moment on, Joseph's like a a lot more complicated. He'd actually broken the law, which had to kind of bother him a, a bit. Plus it says, you know, he had no marital relations with her until she bore a son, which couldn't have been his favorite part of this whole deal. And then the firstborn son, if you remember in, in the Jewish life, the firstborn son's the heir. They get everything. They become the head of the family. And now Joseph's heir will not be his biological son. It's a big deal to a righteous man. You think of his long hours in the synagogue, studying, talk about the scripture, his yearly pilgrimages to Jerusalem for his whole life, proving his faithfulness, all the time he would have spent memorizing the Torah, talking about it with other Jewish men, keeping a kosher kitchen, doing all the different disciplines of hygiene, the tithing, the worshiping, the praying for God to restore Israel, all of it came into play in this moment. When God asked Joseph to kind of violate it and take one for the team, the angel said, the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And somehow, Joseph's habits had prepared him to trust that this could be true. Because he had this, he had this, it had given him this tender heart. I think this is a really important lesson that we learn from Joseph, that cultivating a righteous life gives us the ability to see and respond to things that are conceived by the Holy Spirit. That our daily habits give us the ability to see and respond to things that are only conceived by the Holy Spirit. And without those daily habits, rhythms, and practices in our ordinary lives, we will likely just rationalize away anything difficult or challenging or something that doesn't fit. Um, Ariely, that researcher, he took his team to UCLA, and they, um, they found 500 students who would take part. And it was the same thing, self-reporting, the shredder, the money, all of it was the same. But they introduced one new variable. Um, before they began, the proctor would say, I want us to try to see, just as an exercise, see how many of the Ten Commandments we can think of without cheating. 
And so and it didn't matter how many they got. They would like write as many of them down as they could and laugh at them. And then they would start, erase them and start the experiment. Just do this with 500 students over several days. And the craziest thing happened. Not a single person cheated or lied. Just, isn't that weird? Just a suggestion of like habits and rhythms and practices of virtue that kind of point to an openness toward God took away their ability to rationalize or, or cheat. And so they didn't. Isn't that wild? It's interesting. If you analyze what people say, I mean, I get this probably more as a pastor than most people. If you analyze what people say about hearing God's voice, it seems like most people are listening for God to make their life easier somehow. That's what they're attuned to. And for Joseph, at least, it's a complete other way around. I think we should be suspicious of listening to hear God make our life easier. It didn't make his life easier, but it did make his life matter. And we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. And when God needed him to step up, Joseph was ready. And he didn't rationalize it away. He had cultivated this awareness of God. And he acknowledged Jesus as his son, incorporated him legally into David's genealogy, paving the way for God's plan to continue. It's really just a stunning act of obedience, I think. And I don't know what your life will demand of you. I don't know if you'll see a sign or have a dream. I don't know how God will use you um, in the world. But I do know that it probably won't happen at all unless you have cultivated a sensitivity to God's presence with you. Just on a day-to-day basis, just in your habits. Because there are always just too many ways to rationalize our way out of things. We have to somehow cultivate a soft heart toward God. And if we do, it won't make life easier. It's not like, here's how your dreams come true. But I, I guarantee it can make our lives matter. Joseph and Mary stayed in Bethlehem for a while, maybe as much as a couple of years. The Magi showed up, remember that part of the story? And Herod then sends the the Magi to spy for him. And instead, um, Joseph and Mary are warned in a dream. This brings us to our text for today. So with all that background in mind, let's read our text. This is from Matthew 2. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Here we go again with the dreams. And said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time he had learned from the wise men. This is serious stuff. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, Rachel was from Bethlehem, or she was buried in Bethlehem. But she refused to be consoled because they are no more. 
when Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Here we go again with the, with the dreams. And said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. And then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in, you guessed it, a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Three times here, Joseph um, is spoken to by God in a dream. Each time it makes his life a little bit harder I don't know if you noticed, but each time the angel speaks, the first thing he says is, get up. Get up. Like there's no sitting around if you want to follow after God. This will always make demands on our lives, demands that we will constantly be tempted to rationalize away. The angel says, get up. It's different. Like usually it's just do not be afraid. With Joseph, it's get up. Get going. Um, Similar to Abraham, lech lecha, get going, get to the land I will show you. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. The word flee, it's really interesting. In Greek is the word um, fugi, fuge. Um, it just means to be saved by flight. But you can see fuge, you can see the root of our English word refugee. Same, same word, that's where that comes from. I mean, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus literally become fugue, become refugees. And I don't mean like they were kind of like modern-day refugees. I'm saying the very concept of refugee in the English language comes from this word, fugue. It was shaped by Mary and Joseph fleeing, fugueing to Egypt. And really from this, this moment on, the very idea of what it means to follow Jesus has always involved this idea of becoming, in a very real sense, a refugee in the midst of the world, like Jesus was. To follow God is to become strangers in a strange land, resident aliens, refugees. And those who follow Jesus cultivate this intimacy with God that gives God open access to our imagination. And it's this daily process of learning to hear and respond to the Holy Spirit that ends up putting us completely, like firmly outside the mainstream of culture. We become refugees. Strangers in a strange land who like play by a different set of rules. It's very difficult for us if we have any amount of privilege to see ourselves as refugees. I mean, just for me, as a straight, white, married, educated, employed, male, you know, the list goes on. My own culture wants to give me a ton of privilege. And so the only way I, I can not completely succumb to that is to embrace habits and rhythms and practices that remind me I'm a refugee. I'm a resident alien. And, and therefore, I'm, I should be totally dependent upon God for my future. As we close, I want us to look at a painting. It's a contemporary icon by an artist named Kelly Lattimore. 
called the Sagrada Familia, the sacred or the holy family. And the artist, he painted it after, a, um, after meeting with an actual refugee family and hearing their story. And I, I think this might be the most realistic icon of Mary and Joseph that we've ever seen. And the sandals, the backpack, the brown skin, the dark hair, the holy family on their way to be refugees in Egypt and later Nazareth, all because they're following after God. If you look at it, you can almost like see the weight of the world on Joseph's shoulders. No, all evidence in the Bible suggests that Joseph was poor. The fact that they came on a donkey, this is how peasants rolled. They had no servants, those are never mentioned. He was a carpenter, which meant construction worker. They hadn't even been able to buy their way into the inn on the night Christ was born. You could buy your, your way into anything in the ancient world. Then later when they dedicate Jesus at the temple, they used a dove instead of a lamb. That's what poor people did. Mary and Joseph were poor. So absorbing an international move was not in their budget. This angel comes to Joseph in a dream and he says, run, you have to run, get up right now in the middle of the night, take your family, drop everything, flee to Egypt. You're going to have to be a refugee for a while. And he did it. And they grabbed what they could carry on their backs, lugging a two-year-old, they ran which means Joseph lost whatever living he had established in Bethlehem. Any livestock, gone. A garden, gone. Their home, all gone. They left in the middle of the night, and they never came back. The artist here has them traveling by moonlight. That's, that's how it goes down in the scriptures. This wasn't like a romantic comedy. This, this was dangerous. They fled for their lives in the middle of the night. Scholars tell us that traveling in Egypt was pretty easy if you had means, if you had money, because the rich spent money, and they were welcome in Egypt. The poor needed money, and so they were shunned, preyed upon. They tried to drive them off. They didn't know the language. Um, Joseph would have to take a bad job and be treated poorly. And I love Joseph's right arm. That's my favorite part of the painting. Just makes the whole thing for me. Just extended ever so slightly, like he's preparing the way for them. It's kind of tenderly. You know how you like try to wrap your babies in bubble wrap in the first few months? You're like, this is him, just trying to protect them, clearing away obstacles, watching out for his family. I look at this and I try to imagine myself, you know, waking up in the middle of the night. God telling me my family is suddenly public enemy number one. I have to get up and flee immediately, leave my job, my belongings, leave my home, our family, church, friends, take only what we can carry, go somewhere where I don't know the language, have no credit or job, no reputation, no place to stay. Suddenly my education, contacts, privilege, cultural status will just be useless. And look at this night. I don't know. I mean, can you imagine yourself saying yes if God spoke to you in a dream? And all I can think of is how easy it would be to rationalize my way out of it. 
But I think it's true. There's, there's a very real sense in which following Jesus turns us into refugees in this world. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, first and foremost, which means we play by different rules, right? We speak a different language, and we're moved by voices, by dreams of the kingdom. And as we practice hearing from God each and every day, you know, reading scripture, praying, um, Sabbath keeping, tithing, all the different rhythms that we do, they're, they're meant to give us a tender heart toward God and each other. And as, as we look at this, I don't mean to cheapen how hard it must have been for them, just the opposite. I mean for us to wonder why it seems so easy for us to follow Jesus, given how hard it was for them. Shouldn't it be more like this? Why are we so well-adjusted in a world that is so jacked up? And I think Joseph kind of beckons us to re-engage our refugee status. What was it that moved this young man to take such a risk? Just to be part of what God was doing in the world. And, And I think, of course, the only thing that could do it would be love. But I don't think it was just like romantic love for a woman. I think it was a love for God and for his community, even for himself and the world that had been cultivated through his daily habits, rhythms, and practices. And it it convinced him that his life could actually matter to God. And so I kind of think the question to leave with us is, what can make um, us risk our own lives to become refugees for the kingdom of God, if, if only in symbolic ways or very particular ways to us. And I think it would have to be love cultivated through our daily habits and practices. Love for our family, our neighbors, coworkers, our church. Love for God. Love for the notion that our lives could actually matter as they're taken up into the kingdom. It's a love that must be carefully cultivated day in and day out. And I wonder, have we, like Joseph, done this, cultivated a righteous life that gives us the ability to see and to respond to things that are conceived by the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Oh God, we do, um, we think about, we consider... All that it cost Joseph, a righteous man, a good man, who had to humble himself and become a refugee to chase your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we wonder how we could be part of this. As we sit at the beginning of a new year, thinking about starting off fresh and maybe cultivating new habits, God. I pray that you would um, speak to us about the new rhythms we need to establish so that we can have a tender heart like Joseph's. I pray that maybe, God, you would um, help us to see the ways our privilege has taken over and how we need to um, re-engage our refugee status 
in the world. Help us to be brave to do this. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we're going to receive communion. The way we do it is just we're released and come forward row by row. And the ushers, I'm not sure how we'll do it, but we'll, get, we'll find a way. They may have a plan. But just make your way to somebody who's offering the bread and the cup. Take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and receive it. And as you do, they'll say, um, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable. The reason we do this is on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and a cup, and he kind of shared this, this communal meal with his followers. And he said, think of it this way, the, the bread is like my body, and, the, and the, the cup is like my blood or my life, my essence. And so he said, what I want you to do is every time you gather from here on out, Eat this bread in this cup is a way of kind of taking my life into your life, being made of the stuff I'm made out of, and then being sent out to the world as my hands and feet. He said, do this every time you gather. And so this is why we receive communion. And it's also why we just invite all the strugglers and anyone who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. So if you would please um, pray a blessing on the table with me. Lord, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world Feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All of this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?